Well, let's turn to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> In this book of the Revelation, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was given to John, the apostle, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And in this revelation, we have a description of Christ given by Christ himself. Now, there's many times this actually takes place in the book of Revelation, but I want to look at one particular one that seems appropriate for this Easter morning. And that's in chapter, chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18. <clears throat> John is given a vision of Christ here, high and lifted up. And uh, in his ex exaltation. And it's so stunning, so majestic, so overwhelming that John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Now here's a description that Jesus gives of himself. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. These are tremendous words to contemplate and think about, and that's what I desire to do here with you this morning. Why don't we pray before we go on? <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would give us a revelation of Jesus Christ. We think of how John said here in these opening verses that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We pray that might be the case for us also, that we might be able to truly understand and get a hold of something of the wonder of this description of your Son. Help us, Father. By thy spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. <clears throat> the first thing that Jesus tells us about himself is that he's the first and the last. I am the first and the last. To me, that says, speaks of his, his sovereignty, that he's the eternal one. The phrase is actually expanded on later in the book where Jesus says this in 22.13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, <clears throat> the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So it's a clear description, I think, of the <clears throat> eternal nature of Christ and of His deity because this expression, Alpha Omega, 
is used throughout the Bible to speak of God the Father, God speaking of Himself, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In fact, you even see it here already in verse 8 of chapter 1. This is God the Father speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the fact that Jesus calls Himself the Alpha and Omega, He is just saying He's one with the Father. It's a description of His sovereignty, His eternity, His deity. Christ is the first and the last in reference to the material universe. We're told that all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the one that's in control of all history from beginning to end. He's the self-existent the self-sufficient one. All things were created by Him and for Him. So it's a description of His Godhood when He says, I'm the first and the last. Uh, He is the first and the last in reference to the spiritual realm, not just the material realm, but the spiritual realm. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's the beginning and the end. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Not only is He the sovereign over the material realm and the spiritual realm. He's also the beginning and end of our faith. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. His plan of redemption needs no additions or subtractions. He's got it all from the beginning to the end. Nothing needs to be added to it by sinful man. It's all summed up in him salvation is all summed up in him he's the he's the first and the last he's the first and the last in terms of everything related to our salvation we are complete in Christ so that's the first phrase that he brings out concerning himself i'm the first and the last but then second he says he's the living one isn't that an incredible title for Christ. He's the living one, the one who has life in himself. As he said in John's as it said in John's gospel chapter 5 verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Incredible thing, life in himself. He's the living one. <clears throat> no creature has life in itself. None of us have life in ourselves. We got it from somewhere else. this is uh, the way he explains it there in John chapter 5 is one of the mysteries of the Trinity God gave to the Son to have life in himself but there never was a time when the Son did not have life in himself since he's co-eternal with the Father it's a mystery the uh, some theologians talk about the eternal generation of the Son 
We don't understand these things. God has life in himself. He gave, it, gave to the Son to have life in himself, but there never was a time when he didn't have life in himself. So anyway, he's the living one. He always has been, always will be the living one, co-eternal with the Father. This title or description stands in glaring contrast to all the non-gods of pagan idolatry. They are the dead ones. They're the non-living ones. They're the ones that have no life in themselves. As Paul says in Acts 15 or Acts 14:15 when he had done a miracle or two and some of these people were tempted to worship him uh, like Zeus or Hermes, some of the uh, Roman gods, he said this to him, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that's in them. Turn from the dead to the living, from the vain to what is reality. And uh, Paul said it this way concerning the saints in Thessalonica. He said they turned unto God from idols to serve a living and true God. So Christ is the living one. <coughs> any life you have, any life I have, whether it's physical or spiritual, must come from Him. In Him is life. He's the living one. So, He's the first and the last, the living one. And then He says this, I was dead. Isn't that something? Think about it. Just as we've already looked at these first two things, this sovereign one, this living one, died. And the actual uh, literal here is, I became dead. How could this be? How could it possibly be? As uh, Wesley put it in the song, "'Tis mystery all." The immortal died. Who can explore his strange designs? The prince of life was put to death. He came to dwell among us and was one with us to such an extent that he took upon himself even our last and greatest enemy, death. This man, as we're told in Acts, he was delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and was put to death. He willingly laid down his life for us. Even though he was put to death in the hands of godless men, nevertheless, he says this about what happened. He says, For this reason... The Father loved, loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I laid it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from the Father. The living one died. The living one tasted death and it says this in Hebrews, he tasted death for everyone. He became dead, as it says here. 
He became dead, but he didn't stay dead. Because it goes on to say, And behold, I am alive forevermore. He laid down his life, but he took it up again. Death had no dominion over him. We're told this in Acts 2.24, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then Romans 6.9 says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Death has no dominion. One poet wrote a poem like that, but it's, uh, it can only be true about Christ. Death has no dominion over him. True about Christ and those who are in Christ. Uh, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So Christ did exactly what he said he would do. He triumphed over the grave. He arose from the dead. John 2.18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will uh, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus spoke. And then in Matthew, again, he told his disciples, And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then later on in Matthew, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised. So he said this was going to happen. He said he would be killed. He said he would be crucified. He also said he wasn't going to stay dead. He was going to rise again. And as the song says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. So the question that Job had asked thousands of years before, if a man dies, will he live again, has been finally and clearly answered and demonstrated right in time-space history. A couple thousand years ago, Christ rose from the dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, he says. And Paul says Christianity stands or falls on the basis of the resurrection, on the basis of this historical fact. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Then those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied, he says. Because we're believing a lie. We're believing 
we're believing a lie and we're believing a liar because he said he was going to rise from the dead. If he didn't, it was, he was deceived and deceiving us. So the point I want to make here that is unless our faith is founded on fact, it's worthless. That's what Paul's saying here. Religious words and thoughts and stories mean nothing unless there's a historical reality behind them. But Christ has risen from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life, as he said he was. Christ's resurrection is, uh, one person said this, Christ's resurrection is the amen to all his promises. It's the guarantee of the truthfulness of all that he said. You might think of it this way. If a man steps out of his own grave after three days, just as he said he would, we should believe everything he has to say. And he says, I have authority over death. Where does he say that? Well, right in the next verse. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So the, the last thing we're looking at here in this account is that he says he has the keys of death and of Hades. Most of mankind down through the ages has cherished some thought of life beyond the grave. Somehow, I mean, that's what are all these religions about? Why have they all sprung up all around the world all, through all the centuries? Well, it's somehow trying to deal with this thing of dying and what happens af after death. There's been much speculation and conjecture on the subject but only one man has demonstrated the reality of life after death. And that man has the keys of death and of Hades. The one who was dead but is now alive forevermore has authority over death and the grave. In fact, Christ has made a complete conquest of death and of him who has the power of death, that is the devil. We know by the resurrection of Christ that death has been defeated. Christ is the victor. He's the victor over all that would hinder what God has for us, and he's a victor especially over this thing of death. Though we shall die, we shall yet live, because he lives, we shall live also. For those united with him by faith, there is a glorious resurrection of the body. For others, the Bible talks about a resurrection of judgment. I think you could almost picture it this way when he's thinking of this um, thing of having the keys of death and of Hades. On that great day when Christ comes again, he has the keys to open every grave and bring forth all who are in the tombs. He's just going to unlock it and say, come out. And really, Jesus said it similar in John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so... 
he has given to the Son also to have life in himself. In other words, like we said before, he's the living one. And he gave him authority to execute <coughs> judgment. That is, he has the keys. The keys are a symbol of authority. He has the keys because he is the Son of Man. Yeah, he's the Son of Man. He lived and he died as a real man, just as we were talking about. Do not marvel, Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Well, these are tremendous words. Just even this little phrase, I have the keys of death and of Hades. There's a, so much to contemplate in just that phrase. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ became a man and died that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Why is there this fear of death? I think the reason there is, and that's not just dying. If, if it was just dying and that's all there was, I don't think people would fear death. But deep down, people know there's more to death than just dying. There's a fear of death because deep down we know we're accountable to God for how we've lived. Again, in Hebrews it says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes judgment. And I think deep down in people's hearts and their souls, they know that's a reality. They can try to deny it. They can push it down. But they know that death doesn't stop everything. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after that comes judgment. And part of the reason we know that's true is we just know there must be a judgment if justice is to be done because justice isn't done here on this earth. God's law has been broken and the penalty is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. But Christ's death has paid that penalty in full and His resurrection shows that God has accepted that payment. We're told in Romans, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised, he was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Now, I want to quote a man named Wilbur Smith here. He put it this way, the resurrection is proof positive of the sufficiency of the atonement. It is the Father's signed manual that he is satisfied with our substitute our sacrifice, our priest, and that nothing now stands between sinners and forgiveness. All that is needed has been accomplished since Jesus has come back from the dead. It's a, it's a testimony to all the world that God has accepted this sacrifice that Christ has made on behalf of sinners. So he can say, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And he can set us free from our bondage to the fear of death. 
He can set us free with those keys. Our last enemy is also his last enemy. But he's shown himself to be victorious. Let me read it out of 1 Corinthians 15.20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. See, he's, he's the first. It's like, here's the first person to be raised and to live forevermore. He's the first fruit, and there's going to be a bunch following. <clears throat> Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ that is coming. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So the last enemy we're going to have to face here on this earth is death. And it's his last enemy. And he's already victorious over it. We know that because he's raised from the dead. Now, in the book of Revelation, towards the end, in chapter 20, verse 13, it says this, And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Isn't that an amazing picture? Death and the grave thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have this phrase, death and Hades, where Christ says he has the keys to death and Hades. And then later on we're told that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. I don't understand all that this is trying to teach here, I'm sure. But I do believe this, Christ has the keys of death and of Hades. And if we're going to escape this second death that he's talking about here, this lake of fire, we must look to him and put our entire trust in his life and death and resurrection on our behalf. So... A description of Christ. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is why he could say to Martha there at the tomb of Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks this, do you believe this? So he asked Martha, do you believe this? And that's a question for us today. Do we believe this? Do you and I believe this? This is what he says about himself. Do we believe it? 
Well, um, John fell at his feet. This is this is the John that used to lay his head upon the breast of Christ. But when he sees him here in this situation, in his exalted position, he fell, he fell at his feet as a dead man, he said. But Christ didn't leave him there. He laid his right hand upon him and said, Do not be afraid. Why not? Because I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Well, something appropriate to think about, I, th- I think, on this day that uh, we are to, a lot of people anyway, take it as a day to remember the resurrection of Christ. Why don't we pray again? Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Son and that though he was dead, though he was crucified, he's the living one and he lives forevermore and that he has the keys of death and of Hades. And uh, we just, we want to Take that position that John took, falling at your feet, recognizing who you are, and uh, also just realizing more of what you've done for us, that you are indeed the first and the last. Even in relation to our salvation, you're the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that you would bring us on and help us to walk in this reality of the resurrection that we have right now given to us through the Holy Spirit, resurrection life, that we can live differently than those who are outside of Christ. Help us to walk in this reality and be a testimony of the risen Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.